0: Hello and welcome to Hot Take Think Tank. I'm Kier,
1: And I'm Liam. This week we'll be discussing whether the dark triad is the root of social ills, how the U.S. Census measures race, pharmacare in Canada, and of course the latest Cure Here article about viewing healthcare as a privilege. But we wanted to start with a bit of follow-up and respond to a listener email that we got
0: yes uh we got an email in regards to a an exchange that we had last episode um and a comment yeah. that you made right liam
1: yes yeah it was something i said that prompted the email uh it was in the airbnb section last time around and um you had asked me like i i said something about you know maybe some places would benefit from airbnb and other ones wouldn't and you asked me to guess uh or speculate uh what places might benefit from airbnb and one of the things i said was like a a small town uh that could benefit from tourism but maybe doesn't have enough going on to like attract a, a hotel Uh, and we got an email about that speculation.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I remember like at the time we were recording, I was tempted to push back because I do have Mm -hmm. some rural friends who are renters and it's become somewhat common for local renters to get kicked out in the late spring Mm -hmm. so that the landlord can rent a, rent a tourist, uh, over the summertime. Um, so yeah, the email we received, uh, speaks to Airbnb's impact in rural communities uh, it says, I can personally name three people I know who have lost their housing in the last two years, right here in my community of less than 600 people, due to their landlord putting their place on Airbnb. Small places have a worse housing crisis than cities, not a better one, and tourism and short-term rentals exacerbate the problem. Talk to anyone in Tofino about this. That's why Tofino, Yakulit, and Sechelt have all put moratoriums on new Airbnb listings and other controls on its spread in their area. And for people listening in that are far away from British Columbia, Canada, <laughs> um Tofino and Ucluelet are on Vancouver Island, uh and mm-hmm. Sechelt is sort of north of the city of Vancouver and all of them are much smaller places.
1: Totally. Yeah, and it's it's good feedback. I I uh I don't think I would have guessed. I I wasn't clear about it, but I wouldn't have said anywhere in BC Uh, has enough housing that it would be a good thing for a a small BC town and uh, I do also think though that I have a tendency to like get very wrapped up in like the big picture overall statistic kind of idea and totally uh, forget about like the individuals whose lives are affected by uh, policies and companies like Airbnb Uh, so the reminder that like you know these policies actually result in people losing their housing uh, is a good uh, good thing for me to keep in mind, I think. And uh, feedback I'm happy to hear.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, and there are like 16,000 whole houses in bc Mm -hmm. that are on short-term rental sites (laughs) which is a huge number right these aren't like basement suites or laneway Mm -hmm. houses they're whole homes that are only available for short-term rental and there's actually some new legislation provincial legislation that's come in to uh, try and address uh yeah short-term rental stuff
1: totally just coincidentally like the week after we did our episode touching on airbnb our province announced a bunch of new uh regulation uh about short-term rentals um i think the gist of it is that it's trying to grant municipalities more ability to regulate airbnb and sort of set new defaults for municipalities that haven't uh come up with regulations of their own yet so uh like it triples the daily fine that uh bylaws can charge uh from one thousand to three thousand dollars per day um, and there's also like data sharing requirements that uh, short term rental platforms have to report to the municipalities how many short term rentals there are. And um, and they also need to operate like actual businesses with business licenses that report to the city uh, and that sort of thing
0: yeah yeah it seems uh all very positive and Mm -hmm. uh evidence-based um but there are actually some exceptions exemptions to the new legislation Uh, most communities under ten thousand people are Mm -hmm. going to be exempt uh although those municipalities can opt in so our email sender may still have to advocate uh, to have it adopted in their community
1: yeah yeah totally and i i think i'm the more like pro-business of the two of us but i'm not to the degree where i have any problem with regulation coming in it's like when when a business isn't interfering with uh much more important priorities like getting people housing i think that's like a, a perfect candidate for uh when the government should step in and sort of get in the way of uh a business uh messing with the market like that so yeah. uh yeah i think it's cool i think it'll be interesting to see just how far it spreads um yeah and you know how many small municipalities uh opt in because uh Yeah, I I don't think we're in an area particularly that Airbnb makes a ton of sense uh, when you're trying to run a society.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we do just have such low housing stock and the problem used to be more concentrated in cities, but the pandemic really like spread it out to every corner of uh, every corner of the country is really struggling with affordable housing right now, for sure. Um, So, yeah, I'm really glad that our listener wrote in and we really do welcome feedback on our episodes like this is clearly a conversational podcast and part of that is that we're going to speculate and Mm -hmm. um if you have information for us uh we're open to changing our minds so please do write in
1: totally yeah i think i think that's like part of the idea of the show is that you and i don't agree about a lot of these things um and the, the fun of it sort of is that we push each other in ways that we can't anticipate right and we try and uh you know, sort of hone each other's ideas like that. So, uh, yeah, any listener who wants to participate in that part of the show is uh, very welcome to.
0: Absolutely. So Liam, I uh, (laughs) I keep hearing about this dark triad. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) isn't it
1: a sinister-sounding name?
0: (laughs) It sounds very scary. It
1: does, Uh, but it's not out of like a fantasy novel or something. Uh, It's from the first article we're going to discuss today, (laughs) Uh, and it was entitled "The Sociopaths Among Us and How to Avoid Them," Uh, published in the Atlantic and written by Arthur C. Brooks. Uh, It's an advice piece based around the concept of the dark triad, a type of person with a combination of narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy. The advice, perhaps unsurprisingly, is to avoid that kind of person. But don't worry, there are also light triads who are people with a combination of faith in humanity, humanism, and, quote, a Kantian adherence to the idea of universal moral law. Those people are good. (laughs) And the conclusion is that maybe if we all band together and support the light triads and dismiss the dark triads, we can make the world a better place. What do you think, (laughs) Kier?
0: Well, uh, first of all, I'd say I was really shocked to see this article in The Atlantic because it's something that I might expect from like maybe BuzzFeed or um, Mm. from a sort of... um, A website that tries to look like it's psychology today that type of thing totally and i think there's also like i can't help but feel like there's a little bit of a new age flavor in the whole like light versus dark uh framing yes um so yeah the fact that the atlantic published this was really surprising and i was actually a little bit skeptical to talk about it on the podcast (laughs) because i was like i just like is it even worth it but you were really intrigued by it
1: oh totally i think i i uh, it's gotta be my the worst article we've discussed on the show so far <laughs> but i just think it's bad in a, a way that i find very intriguing i don't know like you like you say it's totally the sort of thing you'd see i don't know even on like a like a magazine rack at a grocery store something like that oh where yeah it's like a really you know um you know sort of a catchy title about you know you're going to be in trouble if you don't have this information and then uh it touches on a lot of things acting like it's like they mentioned the word research a ton of times in this article. Uh and it's n- <laughs> not untrue, but it's um a funny it's a funny sort of way of looking at the world and a and a very funny article of advice I found. <laughs> I I think my my core thing that I found so strange about it was like it defines these dark triads, right? Which are people who um first of all just the us versus them framing of it like that there are these like dark evil people who live among us (laughs) that can be like identified and separated out uh is i just that seems wild on its face to me (laughs) Mm -hmm. and the funny thing i found about like the whole concept of dark triads is that like um it doesn't seem that more clearly defined to me than just like the idea of a jerk you know what I mean (laughs) like it's couched in all these like you know you know you can measure it and it can be like observed and researched and correlated with things but it's like the advice it felt to me really just boiled down to like you should avoid people who are bad and mean and uh you should get close to people who are nice and sincere
0: (laughs) right yeah it feels like it's sort of um it's got a bit of an alarmist tone right because it's Mm -hmm. like oh, you might think these people are rare, but they're not. They make up 7% of the population. Yeah, 1 in
1: 14 people.
0: Exactly. Uh. (laughs) So, you know, and it's like, yeah, and there's this idea that like, oh, these people seem charming, you know, when you first get to Mm -hmm. know them, but then they trick you and they'll reveal their true selves later on. So, yeah, it definitely seems like a very kind of sinister way of talking about like, you discover someone is a jerk, what should you do, right? Right. Um, totally. And I think one thing that's really funny is that they really did tone down the title because I think the original mm. title of the article mm-hmm. was Beware Dark Triads and Their Toxic Personalities.
1: Ooh.
0: <laughs> right? Perfect very for spooky good. season. It <laughs> is, yeah.
1: That's that's a very Halloween themed uh, <laughs> headline for the Atlantic to have. <laughs> well,
0: and it's funny too because it's saying like you know one in fourteen people are,
2: mm-hmm.
0: or possess a dark triad. I'm not sure if mm-hmm. if you are a dark triad or you you possess a dark triad. But anyways, mm. um, apparently fifty percent, five zero percent of people polled right. qualify as a light triad. So totally. that's way, way, way more common. Um, yeah,
1: that that seems like like just those two stats made me think that this article would have a positive spin to it because that's like a pretty good ratio. <laughs> it really could, <laughs> I, right? Uh, but it's not not so much presented that way. There's a, there are also a few parts where they like went on to describe dark triads in ways that made me feel bad for them, like hmm. um like men within the prison population are disproportionately dark triads, mm-hmm. which is, um, oh, I was just grasping this whole article wishing for, like, them to ever control for a confounding variable or anything like that.
0: Oh, tell me more.
1: Um, well, there's lots of, lots of other things that uh, uh, the men within the prison population are d- disproportionately, uh, like, they're mo- disproportionately poor disproportionately right. black um and there was no mention of like controlling for those variables at all mm-hmm. which i don't know do you ever see a uh, parasite yes, from 2019 okay i often go back to a line from that uh movie which is about this poor family who they all get jobs working at this uh, rich family's house um and they have this one exchange where one of one of the kids says um that it's, you know, remarkable that these these people that they're working for, they're rich, but they're also nice. And it's like, oh, a rich person who's nice, that's remarkable. <laughs> um, but the dad sort of corrects them and says, like, uh, 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 no, they're nice because they're rich. They have mm. all this money to sort of splash around. So it's easy for them to be nice. Whereas it's hard for us to be nice because we barely have enough as it is, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, So absolutely. it just made me think, like, is the dark triad thing going the wrong way, where dark triad people are people who are down on their luck and need to put themselves first just to get by? <laughs> right. Or light are light triad people people who, like, have a pretty good station in life and get to care about... Kantian objective moral rule instead of like you know getting the next meal on the table or something like that
0: right like yeah if you're desperate to yeah meet your basic needs like are you more likely to be manipulative are you more likely to be selfish right and
1: is that even like a moral failing at that Mm -hmm. point to be selfish or, is, right, it's like, I don't know, it gets down to the, like, can you steal a loaf of bread to feed your family, or whatever. It's right, like, right, uh, like there's
0: no mention of, like, there being any social or public failings in there, right, or, or people being failed totally. by... Or,
1: or anything know. other than, like, it's very, like, an individualistic look at this whole thing of some people being mean, <laughs> right? That, like, there's no, there was never, a con it was never contextualized in how it... um like, you know, the sociological viewpoint that, uh, like, most things that arrive arise in people come from their contexts, uh, mm-hmm. it was very much presented like, <laughs> I don't know, almost like a, what's the word for the, uh, like, the reptilians or whatever? It almost had that vibe to uh, it of, like, yeah. you know, there's, like, a secret subset of society who are, like, inherently just they're evil they're just evil people you know there's evil (laughs) which i think is a a pretty bad way uh to look at the world and assess uh kind of anything (laughs) well
0: that's because you're a light triad (laughs) i
1: suppose so (laughs) now another funny thing about the article is how it consistently referred to the reader as not a dark triad right like it consistently used like literally uses us and them to refer to light triads and dark triads, respectively, which seems like a like an optimistic guess. If it's seven percent of the population, that's you'd true. Think, you'd think dark triads would be here reading it, right?
0: Well, I think there was one point where they're like, if you think this is uh, yes. you, get help.
1: <laughs> which is so funny because it's the whole thing is also discussing these as traits, which is sort of like a specific uh, word in psychology that refers to like a stable and enduring attribute Interesting. Uh, it's like um like being sad isn't a trait it's like a passing fleeting thing right mm-hmm. but uh, these these traits like narcissism they're not generally thought of as things that can be uh uh like changed within oneself yeah you definitely
0: know? especially like in the popular imagination because i do think I've read about there being some, uh, useful interventions. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, you have some problems like people with narcissism are very, very unlikely to ever seek out help. Um, totally. but even like, because we don't diagnose kids with psychopathy, for example, mm. I'm trying to remember what it's called, but it's like callous and unempathetic behavior or so- uh-huh, something okay. like that. Yeah. I might not be getting it totally right, but, um, yeah, you, that's, that's what, <laughs> Future psychopaths get called as children and mm. um, and there are like basically yeah people with psychopathy and this is from John Ronson's book uh, yeah. the psychopath test um, mm-hmm. they're they're much more motivated by positives than by negatives so they don't really respond to punishment but okay. If they can be convinced that like their life is going to go better if they follow these mm-hmm. you know rules and social norms that they see around them, that they'll Probably. be happier and more successful, and they're going to make their lives a lot more difficult if they give in to impulses that they're having to act otherwise, um, mm-hmm. that's that's something that can be kind of a, can make a difference for people, but that you don't ever hear yeah. about that like when you know the public, uh, or social media is like discussing these, these conditions. It really is treated oh. as like, this is what an evil person <laughs> is, right? right?
1: Yes, very much so. <laughs> and so I guess it's nice that this article throws away one line being like, uh, seek help if you are worrying about whether you qualify. Uh, but that's it. That's, it's two words of advice seek and help. So hopefully, yeah. hopefully that does the trick for people, <laughs> but
0: well, and they did link to a quiz. Um, That's true. And being the neurotic person that I am, I definitely mm-hmm. took that quiz.
1: <laughs> I took it also. Uh, so now we know. Well, it it's not like a gets it thumbs up, thumbs down, dark triad quiz, but it gives you your scores on all three subcategories: Machiavellianism, narcissism, and psychopathy. Uh, so. Uh, do I need to hang up the the call? Or are you a dark triad? Do I need to cut out of my life?
0: <laughs> well, um, I scored really low on psychopathy, so this scores hey, same. are <laughs> yay. <laughs> <laughs> um, all the scores are from zero to five, and I only uh, got...
1: Oh, it's ac- <laughs> zero to five would make more sense. These scores are actually from one to five.
0: Oh, really? So one so is the lowest. One you can get. is
1: full. Yeah, one is what traditionally would be called zero.
0: <laughs> oh, that's interesting it's okay. a weird scale yeah but yeah. that's
1: that's what i found well that uh, makes me
0: feel even better about my 1.3 psychopathy skill oh, that's wow. like barely any bit of psychopath it's just a little barely sprinkle. any
1: but uh you're talking to someone without even a sprinkle i got <gasps> a one no psychopathy not even a trace so oh, no. Uh, no i'm not necessarily better than you but uh you, know. you might be <laughs> take what you will from that <laughs> that information oh, uh, no. my my highest score was narcissism. Mm-hmm. I got a two point
0: eight <gasps> well, I'm less of a narcissist than you. <gasps> I only got two point two
1: <laughs> <laughs> Wow, mm-hmm. I think those are both. I mean, I guess mine is past two point five, so you're, like, more Wait. of
0: a narcissist than not a narcissist.
1: But I think you are, too, because it's not zero to five. It's one to five, so the midpoint is not 2.5.
0: It would be th- it it's would three, be... right?
1: Oh, right. Okay, so we're both in the clear, then. Phew. Uh, yeah, which is good, considering how great I am. I'm <laughs> glad the can recognize that. <laughs> I did, I jotted down a couple, like, example questions. It was just, uh... Like, statements about oneself, and you had to choose, like, strongly disagree, disagree, neutral, agree, or strongly agree. And statements were things like, I hate being the center of attention, people who mess with me always regret it, and I am an average person. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> they managed to, de- de- yeah, determine it all from, uh, I think there were 27, uh, statements like that, and, yeah. uh, that's where the numbers come from.
0: And I thought that was so interesting. But first, I want to know who Mm -hmm. is more Machiavellian, and then I'll finish that thought. Mm. I got a 2.2.
1: I got 2.4.
0: Oh, my gosh. So,
1: uh, I think that means my total score would be higher than yours, eh? Let's see. Just a scooch?
0: Yeah, I think mine's like 7, or wait. Are you adding? Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 6.1? A little bit of on-the-air math. I got a 6.6 overall, so, uh...
0: Wow, so I'm the good one.
1: So watch out! Yeah! <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, no, I like that you brought up, like, the specific questions, um, because mm-hmm. some of them seemed, like, really benign to me, like... Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I redid my math. I'm actually only a 5.8, so, yes. Oh,
1: whoa. So I'm way worse. Yeah, you're way worse.
0: Um... <laughs> anyways but but what was interesting is like Mm. there's a question uh that said most people are easy to manipulate and that one i
1: noticed that too
0: (laughs) yeah like that one to me has got to be about the machiavellianism and what's Mm. funny about that is that like i do think people are easy to manipulate but it's Mm -hmm. also against my moral code to manipulate people so i don't act on that but i think that it is true
1: right no i i think i i think i strongly agreed with that statement i think it's it's like a good part of being self-aware to realize that you are able you can be manipulated and other people can be manipulated i feel like being blind to that would uh get you into some sticky situations i think it's (laughs) i don't know that's a weird one
0: (laughs) i i totally agree like that's that's what made me skeptical of this article right is it's like Mm -hmm. if i can score as high as i did um, by agreeing that like people see me as a natural leader, like that yeah, that doesn't actually totally. speak to like how I treat people, how I handle a position of leadership, even if I no. take on positions of leadership, right? Like a lot of it, totally. It's kind of like the it feels more like thought policing, right? It's, it's less about like the behaviors yeah. that you exhibit and more about like I don't know, I guess how you how you see the world. Um, and I was also surprised that I could score so high because I. I hmm. do feel very optimistic about the world. I do think most people uh, oh, right. are kind and, <laughs> and, and like, you know, so yeah, um, yeah it feels, uh, totally. it feels I, easy to sco- score high.
1: Yes. I did not get the impression taking this test that it was measuring anything of meaning. <laughs> I like, I, I really didn't, uh, I didn't get the feeling that there was much, much to this. A lot of it. I, I mean, I guess maybe the psycho path questions were a bit more clear uh, like the people who mess with me will always regret it um, <laughs> that one seems a bit odd <laughs> but um, I guess I, ha- I couldn't picture it <laughs> like a totally uh, normal kind of person I'd want to be friends with getting like 100% on this test but yeah. uh, I don't think you need to get 100% to be a dark triad so yeah, yeah interesting yeah exactly interesting slash nonsense <laughs> i also got to call out just like oh the use of uh just one one last thing about this article the way i, I love when people you, uh talk about research in a way where i'm like there's no way that the research uh proves that um <laughs> like it says um not surprisingly these personalities are ever present on social media which research has shown be a dark triad paradise.
2: I that
0: was I literally have that in my notes because I was like, "That is a sentence." What social media is a dark triad presence, and paradise. research has shown yeah. that. Oh yeah, dark research triad has shown paradise. it.
1: It's like to to show that sort of thing in research, you need like a functional definition of what a dark triad paradise is. I feel like,
0: like yeah, that sentence just like <laughs> obliterates the whole article. like if you feel confident saying that (laughs) then you've lost the plot and like you cannot be trusted to be delivering that information
1: (laughs) i mean i (laughs) i I wonder if you got like a list of all the times the phrase research has shown uh like articles with that in it how often research actually shows that thing it's a weird i feel like people just love to put that at the start of just before they say some wild (laughs) claim that has no no uh nothing behind it just uh i mean research research has shown
0: shown that really makes people trust what you're saying a lot more than they would (laughs) otherwise so
1: and it has shown that you are a little bit more of a psychopath than me
0: (laughs) (laughs) whatever overall overall i'm a better person though so that's true i'm okay with that (laughs) unless
1: you fudge the numbers to trick us all into thinking you are good which is exactly what someone would do uh if they were bad (laughs)
0: <laughs> it's so true it's so true yeah we cannot we cannot discount the fact that i could be evil for sure very true yeah um okay liam i have a question for you okay what do you think the term rune means
1: <laughs> well i looked this up earlier when i read the same article as you Dang it. Uh, Nice Uh. try, though. (laughs) It means uh, someone who is an eighth black. Yeah. Uh, Octo being the eighth. I'm not sure where rune comes from. Probably something offensive.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it definitely could be. Um, Yeah, the next article we're going to discuss is called An American Puzzle, Fitting Race in a Box. And it was written by Jennifer Medina and published by the new york times and Mm -hmm. um yeah it's it's about like yeah the history of the u.s census and i thought it was super super interesting um so it kind of it gives us a history and then it talks about like the kind of current issues um that are Mm -hmm. being discussed about the census so the first census was in 1790 and it has been done Mm -hmm. every 10 years since then and the first sentence categorized or census categorized people as either free white people, other free people, or slaves. And it did not count Native Americans at all. And uh, every census since then has made changes to the racial and or ethnic categories you can choose from.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Now... As much as 23andMe has tried to deny this fact, um, race and ethnicity (laughs) are social constructs. (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs)
0: There is no blood test that can categorize someone's race. And Medina says there's a murky history of law, politics, and culture around racial identity in America. And the census, obviously, um, the way it changes really affect that or um, Mm -hmm. reflect that over time.
1: Yeah, totally. I got the I got the impression that like um, around the time of the civil rights movement, it became very important to uh, have your race or ethnicity represented because uh, all of a sudden there were a bunch of laws that protected uh, uh, discrimination based on race, um, mm-hmm. protected people from that. So, in order to sort of prove that you had been wronged in that way, you needed an actual count of. Uh, you know, you know what's the population rate and then this company hires a hundred thousand people and has you know a uh, way disproportional racial makeup then uh, that might be against the law
0: yeah yeah exactly like I feel like there's an interesting tension throughout the years where you have certain groups uh, advocating to be uh, included and counted mm-hmm. distinctly because that does allow to allow you know health uh Institutions like all sorts of different government bodies to look mm-hmm. at whether there are things like educational disparities or health disparities and how to address those. Um, but oh. you have this con uh opposite poll that's happening where uh people have also lobbied to be counted as white. Um,
2: mm-hmm.
0: There are a couple different examples of that. Um, Mexican was listed as a, a race in 1930, but it was removed for the next census because Mexicans lobbied to be counted as white. Um, mm-hmm. And you'll also right. notice that um, Middle Eastern people and North African people, yeah. um, they also lobbied to be counted as white in the early 1900s because... You would only have a pathway to American citizenship if you counted as white,
1: right? So, and and that yeah. lobbying I, succeeded. And it's this this round of changes that they're thinking of adding uh, North Africa and Middle Eastern as a race. If I read it correctly.
0: Yes. Yes. Exactly. That is one of the things on the table for the 2030 census because we mm-hmm. don't really have any numbers right now about whether there are health disparities or other other kind of equity issues um in those groups um because they have not been separated out
1: right there was one one fascinating stat one of my (laughs) maybe my favorite stat we've talked about on the show um it just says in 2020 quote some other race quote was the second largest race group measured by the census so like most white was the biggest group second biggest group was some other race and then all of the specific other races were smaller than that one so the list they'd come up with, uh, people, most people, or the large, the plurality of people who were not white, uh, didn't fit into one of the other categories by their own, their own judgment, which is wild. Yeah. Seems yeah. like a bad list.
0: <laughs> it's got to be a bad list, right? Because yeah, if, if yeah, the second largest group <laughs> is miscellaneous, like that really does not give us the information they need. And one of the main mm-hmm. reasons for this is that. Um, when hispanic people advocated to be added for whatever reason the the census bureau at that time was like oh it'll be too difficult to add that as a race so Mm -hmm. they added it as like a separate question right so there is a question about whether you identify as hispanic and latino was later added to that um and then the next question is about race and hispanic and latino is not an option on there so Yeah, if you don't identify as white or black or Asian, then you're going to be checking the other box. And I thought there was actually a really funny uh, quote Mm. from a senior demographer with the Pew Research Center in this article Mm. uh, named Jeffrey S. Passel. And he said, The Census Bureau, ever since they added the Hispanic origin question to the census, has been grappling with how to get Hispanics to tick one of the conventional race categories.
2: (laughs)
1: You're right. Isn't that yeah. kind
0: of funny? They're like, why won't these people just pick black or white or Asian? Right.
1: Like... Yeah, totally. <laughs> they're just, they just can't figure out how to... Well, and it sounds like that's another one of the things they're proposing changing is moving Hispanic or Latino into the list of races as opposed yes. to the separate ethnicity question.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which seems like, you know, seems reasonable, Um, Mm. but a group that is concerned about that is um, uh, Afro-Latinos, because they're basically worried that Afro-Latino people will start only checking the uh, Hispanic-Latino box and not the uh, Black and or African-American box. Um, But of course, you can check more than one, like there's no restriction on the number of boxes.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, the other, I don't know, the thing that seems like it will lead to scary headlines uh, in 2030 is that uh, they think with the proposed changes, the number of people counted as white is likely to decline. Yes, um, because because adding Hispanic will move some people from uh, white to Hispanic who have always been Hispanic, but just like you can see the headlines already, right? That there will be, you know, the white population declining. Uh, riles up some terrible people <laughs> totally this i picked could totally up be on, fodder for that
0: <laughs> yeah i noticed the exact same thing i was like all right everybody like be vigilant in 2030 for conspiracy yes. theories about the you know the great replacement <laughs> happening yes, because it will
1: be uh, yeah. an accounting change not a population change although obviously there's population changes too
0: <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah, uh, I just, I thought it was a pretty intriguing article. Um, and it just yeah. really does speak to how race really is sort of like a socio-political uh, concept that like for shifts sure. over time in different groups with different interests, push for changes. Um, totally. And uh, and you can even see like, you know, when there started to be uh, anxiety around uh chinese immigration that's when Mm. chinese was added um
1: right yeah because it was like people were worried that there were more chinese people than they wanted there to be so they counted them all yeah (laughs) yeah uh, yeah
0: and it is like it is such a double-edged sword, right? Because obviously it has been totally. used for purposes like that, but you know, if today we're using it to make sure that we can address different disparities, then mm-hmm. you know, arguably it's uh, it's a good thing to kind of get as as specific as we can. But there will totally. never be like a perfect list of races either. No. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no totally i mean it it sort of feels like it's uh yeah i thought it was interesting too just how like the fact that this is part of the census and like they gather all this data leads in some ways leads to the headlines about like racial disparities right um which feels bad that those exist but it feels good to know that they exist Mm-hmm. And sort of without doing a proper counting of everything, uh, that wouldn't change the situation. It would just change like society's ability to uh like make changes regarding it. So it's yes. I don't know. I just thought it was an, an interesting sort of like uh I mean not not neutral because like it goes over the different ways it was like politicized through the years, but like uh just uh, these days it seems like trying to just earnestly measure things uh so as to improve the world (laughs) which is nice
0: yeah absolutely like yeah the whole like coming back to octo rune right like Mm -hmm. in 1890 that's when you know you had the categories of mulatto for someone who was half black quadroon for someone Uh who's a quarter black octo rune one-eighth black and that really like that really (laughs) reflected the one drop rule of the time right that one drop of of you right know, african yeah. blood made you made you african yeah um, and that, that was a, something mm. that was dropped in 1930 as like that way of thinking about race kind of yeah. wasn't so popular anymore
1: totally and another thing that, uh, that startled me a little bit was that um i think it, it said that it was until 1970 that uh the census taker checked that box for you Yep. Um. So they just looked you up and down and put a mark on the box <laughs> based on what you looked like, I guess. Um, yep. Which seems remarkable that they try to estimate whether you are a quarter or an eighth black <laughs> by looking at you. That yeah. can't have been an accurate way to collect any information. But that's how they did it.
0: <laughs> it is. It's wild to think about that. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: yeah. Totally. Uh. And they do, there's just a little mention right at the end about something that, Uh, definitely came to my mind as i was reading the article which is um the census also collects information about gender Mm -hmm. um and it's currently male or female options uh and obviously there's some people pushing to expand that list uh yeah i can't imagine it will
0: only be male and female by 2030 i think i think that'll change
1: yeah, I might depend on who wins the next couple of elections. I guess
0: that's true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, one other uh, recent proposal is adding hmm. American descendant of slavery as like a checkbox, right. um, mm-hmm. because that could be potentially used in reparations. And that's a really interesting idea, just because like you know the very first census in 1790, it didn't even categorize people as black it categorized them as slaves right yeah um so yeah that that's that's really interesting to me you know kind of coming like do people want to identify with that again um
1: totally well and and like you you can't make the assumption that everyone who checks black is a descendant of a slave right Uh, exactly so it is it would it would be meaningful in a way that's like not not captured by the current set of questions
0: yeah, uh, yeah. I, I wonder
1: about there being a separate question for that instead of intermingling it with the race question. But uh, it'll be interesting to know, for sure.
0: Yeah, they're certainly trying to shove a lot of information into this one question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's sort of a wild
1: project, isn't it? Trying to to uh, measure, what is it, 300 million people or whatever and, and get meaningful statistics about them all?
0: Yeah, no, it's it's wild, you know? Like, on the one hand, you're like why do we even do this? Like, it's insane, (laughs) like to try and, you know, because that's the thing, like over time, not even over a long span of time, like borders are always changing. You always have like minority ethnic groups in countries. Um, like the, yeah, there's, there's so much, um, fluidity. Things change over time. Some people want to assimilate. Some people want Mm -hmm. to kind of stay within their diaspora. So, um, yeah but but yeah we can't um it it does seem that uh like dropping that question altogether could certainly only um worsen disparities or or at least make them invisible and so then who even knows if they would get better or worse because we wouldn't be tracking it anymore
1: (laughs) no that's something i feel like you read that news about i've been reading it about uh china's government recently uh where the economy is not going so well Uh, in several ways, and they've decided to just stop publishing a bunch of the numbers that are going in the wrong direction. There Uh, you go. So now no one knows anymore what youth unemployment is because they stopped measuring it. (laughs) Which is, I guess, one way to short-term make your problem go away. But the real question here is, should they add the dark triad questions to the census? (laughs) (laughs) Get, like, a real good population-level Dark Triad uh, measurement. Oh, my gosh. And Can should, you imagine? Should it... <laughs> and should it be a protected class, or is it okay to discriminate <laughs> against Dark Triads? <laughs>
0: I think you'd have a really hard time being, like, an activist for the rights of Dark Triad people, you know?
1: like I don't know, though, but they, they have their ways of getting into getting into high places in government and all that uh that's
0: true maybe they're powerful enough. i mean i think if they could get some like really sort of compassionate spokespeople who mm-hmm. could like you know kind of make up for the, the deficits that they uh
2: yes they yep. have that uh, they're evil yeah that'd be yeah. great <laughs> all right so Amazing.
1: uh let's get to the next article uh the third article we wanted to discuss is about filling a hole in Canada's universal health care coverage. Uh, it's an article from the TAI called PharmaCare's Big Moment is Here. The deciding factor is political will. And it was uh, written by Nav Praswad and Stephen Morgan. Uh, the coalition government in Ottawa is trying to make PharmaCare happen. The official recommendation was for them to implement a universal public program covering essential medicines... But the details about funding, uh, splitting the bill between levels of government, and national procurement are unsettled at this point. And uh, the industry is lobbying for a much-watered-down, fill-the-gaps approach, which would give basic coverage to currently uninsured Canadians, but leave private insurance plans untouched for everybody else. So what do you think about this one, Kier?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm glad it's getting covered because i feel like um it's interesting what gets canadians riled up and what doesn't you know because this is a really huge deal right like Mm -hmm. the idea is basically that the government would buy in bulk um, a number of common medications mm-hmm. right and then they would be able to like yeah negotiate for really good prices and save money both for the government and for the people who end up needing the medication right and a lot of other uh, countries that have health uh, pub- public health care systems um, mm-hmm. already do this right like the United yeah. Kingdom for example um, I think actually over there like there's just um, like you pay the same price regardless of what medication you're picking up.
1: Oh, okay, interesting. So, yeah, so yeah, they I did. A, an I checked in. Thing. I checked into sort of how Canada ranks, and it turns out we, uh, within the OECD, which is like a, a I can't remember about thirty countries, all pretty, uh, like generally rich countries, uh, and Canada spends uh, per capita, we are third highest spenders on pharmaceuticals uh Mm -hmm. after only the united states and switzerland so uh all the other developed nations other than those two uh spend less on their drugs than we spend on ours which doesn't that seems like we (laughs) that's not a list you want to be at the top of is it
0: (laughs) no it's not and i think like drug prices get treated as if they're objective somehow like that's just how Mm -hmm. much that drug costs but that's not true at all right like there are many countries that already do this bulk buying and like if the entire government of canada is like we're not going to pay that much for insulin the drug companies will lower the prices and they have lowered the prices for other countries right (laughs) so Yeah. yeah i
1: mean it's like they won't lower them below like manufacturing costs or whatever but i think it's like 90 percent uh there was some number about that achieving prices that are as much as 90 percent lower than Canadians paid today yeah uh, so there's about 90 percent uh headroom it appears isn't uh, that a
0: wild number
1: that is a wild number uh yeah and I, I actually don't have uh like I'm I'm one of the people who goes to the pharmacy and pays full price for all of my medicines so uh, mm-hmm. This would be great. I I'd, I'd appreciate this. <laughs> uh, yeah, I did. I felt like this article was so pro pharma care, uh, mm-hmm. and I think both you and I are both very pro pharma care. <laughs> um, but I felt like I had to at least look up the other side of the argument mm-hmm. just for posterity's sake. Uh, and I found uh, like a think tank, like a, a conservative think tank's uh, arguments against. And I thought I'd just read them, see what you think, if you're so convinced. If you have to. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, first they say that the true tax burden should be calculated and transparently presented. Because if the government's paying for it, that is, the citizens paying for it through taxes. Sure. Uh, which seems true, but the argument is that... Bulk pricing would bring the costs down. So, exactly. on average, people would pay less money. And the government would pay, yeah. would pay less <laughs> money. Everybody would pay less <laughs> money. Uh huh. Um, okay. They're also worried that uh, drug shortages may result.
0: Yeah, Which well, I... the, the article says the exact opposite, actually, <laughs> yeah, because the government in bulk buying would be able to put aside stockpiles for pr- yes. future store uh, shortages. Right. So we would and be it would... more immune to shortages.
1: Yeah, and it would also be able to like negotiate specific, um, like ongoing contracts, right? Like that this company needs to deliver to us this many pills this you know every month or whatever, right? So mm-hmm. uh, those companies would have to comply with. Uh, existing contracts that would be harder for big companies to negotiate than an entire government exactly so that one wasn't super convincing (laughs) Um, okay this one is the funny one Uh, there is also substantial evidence indicating that lower revenues and profits uh, will reduce pharmaceutical R&D spending so are you worried about the lowered profits for the pharmaceutical companies (laughs)
0: I mean, I'm not concerned about that. I do think that, um, like, public funding um, hmm. for all sorts of research and development, pharmaceutical and otherwise, is not high yeah. enough. Um, and I think actually, like, we are very vulnerable when we mm. leave it up to pharmaceutical companies, what should be researched and what should not, because they will never yeah. research medication that is not going to make them a significant profit, even if we totally. really need that medication to be developed. Um, so, yeah, I, yeah, uh, it does. I don't it think we like... have a good <laughs> method right now, at like mm. the way that um, we've sort of distributed who does research and development i'm not a big fan of it so if that shifts yeah. i won't be too sad
1: no it, it seems like a weird way to fund uh like public health research is through letting pharmaceutical companies charge <laughs> high margins on essential medicine <laughs> and funneling that money it, it yeah Um, There's
0: got to be other ways. (laughs) There's got to
1: be other ways. And and not to be a selfish Canadian, but uh, there's also a different country that provides lots and lots of profits for pharmaceutical companies (laughs) and basically funds all the research for the whole world. So I don't think Canada's uh, an essential part of that chain as it stands. Um, And then finally, it is essential to acknowledge, I'm reading a quote here, uh, the potential for worsening health outcomes and suboptimal therapeutic substitution. Um and I think what they're getting at there is that um if someone like is used to a certain brand name of a medicine uh under the existing system, they might need to switch to like the generic version uh under the replacement system and that that could be suboptimal.
0: For sure. Yeah, that could be suboptimal. But I still would prefer some people get free medication than nobody gets free medication. I don't see how that's like an argument against, you know, the system at large.
1: I think that it's, um, that's like an argument specifically against the like universal, the universality of it, like the idea that like will um, the other medicine even be available anymore uh, if this program comes into place or will like all, privately purchased medicines kind of be off the shelves. I mean, I Uh, think
0: that's ridiculous. But I do, like, you know, (laughs) the the proposal right now is for, like, 100 medications to be covered by Pharmacare, right? So there are tons of medications that will not be touched by that, by this first, you know, act. Um, But, yeah, the idea that suddenly those companies will decide not to send, like, to let, like, companies in Canada buy other medications. Like, I
1: don't, that... yeah. and I just, even if they did, I feel like it still might be a net win with like a slightly, maybe that's me forgetting about the individuals again, but uh, it feels like a few people needing to change their medicine, even if it's suboptimal for their health. Uh, if it net is better for the whole country's health, uh, that might be a cost worth paying.
0: Well, yeah, and the thing is like there's also just a lot of misunderstanding. Like a, a lot of mm. people think that like there's a huge difference between generic and brand name medication yes, totally. and they insist on the brand name. And I will say that yeah, some people are do have allergies to like certain fillers, so there are times mm. when someone can't make a switch, but like almost always you can unless you have like very yes. very specific <laughs> and rare allergies, right? So that that is like you know kind of like a, a, f- a false issue in most cases um and the other totally. thing i just have to say like we're hearing all these conservative arguments yep. and, and the <laughs> idea that like oh that you know there'll be lower quality um mm. pharmaceuticals if we do the yeah. substitutions um i just want to remind everyone that back in 2012 when the conservatives were in charge of canada mm. the federal government cut off access for refugees to medication and treatment for chronic diseases, including hypertension, angina, diabetes, (laughs) high cholesterol, and lung disease. And this was later found to be cruel and unusual by the federal Mm. court, and Mm -hmm. the Trudeau government reinstated those treatments. So I Mm. just feel very cynical about the idea that conservatives or at least the Canadian conservative party are looking out for people's health because when they were in power, mm. they took a number of different steps to make it more difficult for people to get the care they needed and specifically targeted refugees. <laughs>
2: yeah, so, that's a bad yeah. look. That is that's, a bad look. That's part
0: yeah. of their track record. Let's never yeah, forget it. <laughs>
2: totally.
1: Well, it's also, it's like, I feel like this exact list of problems is the same list that like free free market people bring up uh, around any uh, state enterprise uh, yeah like it's the exact same arguments that they have in the states about not having like universal health care at all right? right they're like oh it'll hurt innovation among the companies and uh, we don't want to be for- to force citizens to choose uh, you know take away their choice for which uh, treatment they get that sort of thing um, it's like pretty it seems pretty pretty playbook and I don't think either of us think those arguments hold much water in healthcare in particular.
0: No, I don't find them very convincing. And I do think it's fair to be real about the fact that there are trade-offs, right? Totally. Like yeah. the fact that we have a public healthcare system that more or less depending on the mm-hmm. province, you know, does not allow for private clinics like the the downside is that you can't pay to skip the line. Totally right and people who have the money to skip the line would like to be able to do that right
1: yeah but
0: generally (laughs) most provinces have decided that that does not outweigh like that's not more important than everyone getting treatment right like
1: well and and i think that the system they try to set up is that uh you get to skip the line if you are in need of urgent health care uh which I think is a, a reasonable way to get people to skip lines. <laughs> right, like right. There, that, there yeah. are situations where people need uh, treatment, you know, before other people. Um, but trusting like their their spending power to determine who needs healthcare soonest. Uh, exactly. It Seems like silliness, yeah.
0: Exactly, right. Like, yeah, we could in a private system. Yeah, we can organize who gets in first by how much money they have. In a public system, it's how sick you are.
1: Totally. Right? Well, if everyone was rich. I feel like those might correlate pretty well, um, because if it, if everyone has money to splash around on health care, then uh, people who are sicker would splash around more. But mm-hmm. that's so far from reality that it's not even worth considering, really.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's that's so far from from where we are. So I think it's it's very hard to, like, make a good argument about keeping people from getting the medication they need and and that even got brought up in the article right that mm-hmm. like there are overall healthcare savings from doing this and yeah. i've got to imagine that part of that is that you know if people are not able to avoid, afford preventative or kind of management mm-hmm. medication then their conditions will deteriorate and they'll will be yep. even sicker and need more intensive treatments right so there totally. there are just so many so many arguments for it and <laughs> you know even like individuals just will never have the power to negotiate drug prices and companies totally. within a country have a lot less sway than an entire, com- uh, entire country does right so
1: totally well and it's also reasonably sort of an industry that uh, uh, deals with a lot of regulatory capture uh, meaning like it's not easy for, like, a, a small new startup to compete with the pharmaceutical companies because there is a ton of reasonable regulation around uh, who gets to sell pharmaceuticals, right? You can't be like, oh, I could beat them on price. I'm going to set up a, a Tylenol shop in my garage. <laughs> uh, there's, there's not room for competition like that in the pharmaceutical market. So right. uh, it's not going to be, like, the, the, the people... Acting as if it's like the, the the free market needs to be the solution here, uh, I feel like aren't being earnest with the situation, which is it's not it's not the kind of market that uh, anyone actually thinks should be totally free, and that anyone can sell any bottle of pills that says anything on the outside. Like it's uh it's a heavily regulated thing, which is uh, where uh, where the government is important. Uh, I guess by definition. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely like i think yeah if people knew what a sort of free-for-all regulation free healthcare system <laughs> really results in uh, they would probably change their mind about it pretty quickly
1: totally <laughs> well and it's, it's also disingenuous like the, the companies that are making all the money with the system how it is also don't actually want that uh they they like the situation as it is where there's just enough regulation to keep any honest price competition from bringing prices down but not so much regulation that they don't get to uh charge whatever they want
0: exactly and i think it's good to remember that like all the way back to 1947 when the saskatchewan Mm. government introduces the first provincial hospital insurance program in canada like there was huge opposition uh, the Canadian <laughs> Medical Association uh, completely opposed publicly funded healthcare. Um, you know, so it's it's more of the same. Like we've we've always had these arguments against public health care ever since it started um, totally. that you know that treatment would get worse that doctors Wouldn't work anymore because they wouldn't get paid enough and mm-hmm. so on and so forth like it's it's it is the same playbook It's very familiar and um, yep. and yet like Canada's health care system is like the envy of a lot of other places You know even totally even with yeah, the you, issues that it yeah. has like I would w- Way rather be here than than many other places
1: totally well and and there's no political party in canada that's like we should get rid of universal health care like that's it's a settled issue that Mm -hmm. that was the correct move uh at least for the federal parties and everyone here in bc Maybe in Alberta, you'd find some people who don't like it, but
0: well, yeah, we pretty do. widely
1: regarded well. <laughs>
0: yeah, there definitely are like private surgical clinics in Alberta, um, yep. and so yeah, there are there are some exceptions, and the conservatives are always trying to chip away at like the corners of public healthcare, the public healthcare totally. system. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it's something that you kind of never get to fully put your guard down about, but yeah, they're they're definitely like. Kind of reduced to making arguments about like particular pieces of it rather than totally. like attacking the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah. Well, speaking of healthcare. <laughs>
1: yeah. And Americans. <laughs> and
0: Americans. Uh, yeah. My latest essay was Dear Americans, Healthcare is Not a Privilege. Wellness Gurus Will Not Save You. Uh, mm-hmm. And I released that last Friday. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. it's a, a, an interesting article. I love in, like, right near the top, you, you provide a whole list of things you have tried to help with your chronic illness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is one of the wildest paragraphs I've read in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> um, I almost want to read it here on the podcast just in case anyone hasn't read the article uh but do we have the time
0: (laughs) i think we got the time it won't take that long
1: uh you want to read it or should i
0: i'll go for it yeah so um I start the article by talking about when I first got sick with what would eventually turn out to be a neurological condition. Um, I was really like suspicious of the mainstream healthcare establishment because I felt really let down by it. Um, and so because I felt failed by that, I went searching elsewhere. And here's the paragraph from the essay. <laughs> Before long, I wound up in the vortex of the online chronic illness world. I decided to forego all pharmaceutical treatments and use turmeric pills and marijuana to manage my symptoms. In addition, I tried cutting out sugar, gluten, alcohol, and caffeine, acupuncture, chiropractic, osteopathy, naturopathy, somatic therapy, cranial sacral therapy, neuroplastic rewiring, self-directed exposure therapy, visualizations, positive thinking, yoga, Pilates, walking, (gasps) Jogging, (laughs) dancing, swimming, self-induced neuromuscular tremors, intramuscular stimulation, trigger point injections, electrode stimulation, eating ancient grains, dark greens, berries and fish, drinking iron, protein, herbal teas, Gatorade, cinnamon water, kombucha and more water, meditation, body talk, breath work, energy work, arnica salve, peppermint oil, devil's club cream, several tinctures and bockflower remedies, a variety of supplements, homeopathic pills, probiotics, fiber, spinal traction, neck traction, foam rollers, resistance bands, weighted blankets, weighted eye masks, eye drops, and tinted glasses.
1: That's it? That's all you tried? <laughs> 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 that, it's an amazing list. I, like I, I've known you, obviously, throughout all of that. And it was funny, because like, I, I remember uh many of those um and i also do remember a couple that you didn't include <laughs> oh really it's a why yeah you've you've tried you tried so much over the years <laughs> it's uh remarkable that's a remarkable list you've really you really thrown the kitchen sink at this thing <laughs>
0: <laughs> i really have and you know it it does sound insane but i think it's really common as well because yeah if you hmm. are in unrelenting pain like you you will try anything to get out of it totally um, and yeah, I guess I just, you know, like there was a time where I really thought of Western medicine very, very poorly. And I kind of mm-hmm. held up on a pedestal like alternative medicine. Right. Yeah. Um, but over time, like I just I realized that like the wellness world really positions itself as altruistic right they're actually looking right. out for you the doctors mm-hmm. are the doctors are looking out for their own profit but not us over here right yeah and that's just very <laughs> silly because they are also selling products they also depend on you not being well totally. to need their products right
1: yeah yeah the difference is not one person's charging you money and the other person is not particularly here where we have free health care And the doctors are not charging you money. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly.
0: Well, and that's what I kind of get to in the article is like when I do talk about like, you know, health grifters or or that type of thing on social media, Mm -hmm.
2: um,
0: I get some messages from people who are kind of saying, well, it's better than nothing. Right. Yeah. Um, And I I continue to find that shocking right the idea that like Mm -hmm. a useless treatment is better than nothing and so far everyone who sent me a message like that has been an american and that's why i (laughs) why i started (laughs) my essay or i addressed my essay to americans um because i really feel like you know you're really kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel if if you are defending sugar pills right
1: totally yeah no it's it's sort of a a wild uh like better better than nothing is not the standard you should hold your healthcare to uh (laughs) that's like a that's literally the lowest bar uh well and it's and yeah i don't know i i do have my own thoughts on like placebo treatments and i generally think of them as being pretty dangerous Um, oh that's interesting there is um There's cases like yours where it's, uh, um, you know, uh, a condition that doesn't have very much research around it, and there's sort of not an established mainline treatment, Um, but I don't think generally these uh, placebo snake oil kind of things are that targeted. I think Mm -hmm. they're usually put forward by people who are, uh, like, dismissive of all Western medicine and of all doctors and hospitals, and I don't think they are very targeted. And I think they can land on on people who, um, you know, maybe it starts that they do just have a bit of chronic pain, um, and they get swept up, you know, they start following Instagram accounts or whatever it might be. Um, But then maybe they reach a point in their life where something more serious comes along that does have a treatment, uh, but they have become so ingrained in this way of thinking about the world that they don't seek out the actual treatment Mm. uh and a lot of a lot of diseases uh can get bad really quickly and sort of getting to them early is key (laughs) you know like if you if you spend six months trying to treat your breast cancer with tinctures or whatever uh that might kill you (laughs) yeah so it's uh yeah no, absolutely. Yeah.
0: That's a really good point. Is it's like it's one thing to turn to placebo. Um, yeah, when you're dealing with something that's not going to kill you. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like taking that same mindset where you're paranoid about the mainstream healthcare system. You think that they profit off of keeping you sick. You're going to do everything totally. you can to avoid them. Um, that is incredibly dangerous. If you have a, a yeah life life-limiting illness right (laughs) totally yeah Um, and it might
1: do it might do no damage to you for 30 years straight right but then at the end of those 30 years it could be very bad to have been thinking that way for that long
0: yeah absolutely and people do try and cure cancer through meditation or through drinking lemon water or whatever and people die because of that so it, Um. it does get really serious and but i think something that really kind of underlies all of this is that um i've also noticed that americans will often refer to healthcare as a privilege and right. that's something i really take issue with um in the essay because framing mm-hmm. something that is actually a human right a recognized yes. human right as yep. a privilege really makes it sound like something that like some people are gonna have and some people are not gonna have and, mm-hmm. you know, maybe we can make the group that has it a little bigger. Maybe you can join the group that has it rather than just being like, no, like there's there's no such thing as deserving health care. Right. That's it's impossible totally. not to deserve it. And I, I really would love to see like every time it pops up that healthcare care is a privilege, <laughs> someone stands up and saying says, no, it's a right. Everyone yeah. has a right to health care and i think totally. that we would see less suspicion and less paranoia and less fear mm. you know cuz i think so much of that is built on like the horrible experiences that people have with the healthcare system in america and the way yeah. that it is motivated by profit right like it's it's mm. not just mm-hmm. in people's imaginations that like right. yeah. their well being is not the top priority but i think the answer to that is not gurus and it will never will be right
1: <laughs> right Totally, the answer to that I think you're getting at would be like, the government acknowledging it as a right and doing its darnest to provide it to everyone. Right?
0: Exactly, yeah. yeah. And uh, there was actually a great comment from Reading hmm. Rainbow, love that show, <laughs> miss it, um, who says, the division is the point, as it is with all discussions of privilege in a social justice context. Framing things... Imp- Terms of privilege also implies that the privilege could be taken away. It suggests an authoritarian parent-child relationship, and Mm. it goes on to say, "White privilege is being treated like a citizen with rights. This isn't a privilege; it's a right." By framing it in terms of white privilege to be dismantled instead of rights to be gained for minorities, you are Mm. priming for a solution that involves removing rights and freedoms. Uh Rather than gaining them for society as a whole, everyone loses. You better behave right. or mommy will take away your cell phone privilege
1: <laughs> yeah totally you yeah I had a, a similar thought to that last bit reading about um because you do mention yeah how how privilege is like acknowledged on social media um and how you used to value and engage in such empty gestures <laughs> mm-hmm. um. It's, it did make me think, like, that, uh, like, what is sort of the right uh, impulse when you feel privileged? Um, mm-hmm. Like, is, because I feel like the current standard is that you're supposed to acknowledge your privilege, um, which I kind of agree with you seems to be an empty gesture. Um, and maybe it's like when you feel privileged, the, the right move is to look if there's any way you can expand uh, how far that privilege reaches, like, like, uh, how can you make everyone have that same privilege that you currently have? Uh, so that it's like not a privilege anymore. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think like the, this framing uh, can get really tricky. And there was an example that happened, uh, in Mm. Victoria, BC, um, where Mm -hmm. they started, studied it and found that indigenous students were a lot less likely to uh, be in the music programs at the Mm. public schools and so the school board decided to cancel the music programs
1: for (laughs) equity wow right that they can't have any programs that aren't uh, equal so we'll cancel the ones that aren't equal and there's definitely no
0: there's no way to like encourage indigenous students (laughs) to join the music program or to make it more appealing or welcoming no (laughs) the way that we can Hmm. provide equity is by just getting rid of it and nobody gets music and that is exactly what i feel like that commenter was describing right like that's and Hmm. and that just is such a a bizarre way Hmm. of of responding to privilege right yeah
1: it, it makes me think of uh, something from like business uh, school or whatever, uh, which I did not attend, but I've read things related to, um, which is uh, when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. That's uh, interesting. And that's the thing I think of often, right, where that seems like an example of that happening where it's like, we, OK, we want to measure to find disparities uh, in these various programs, right, because uh, we want to bring them down. Uh, and measuring it makes sense and wanting it to be brought down makes sense but as soon as you lose track of like why and you start focusing just on like how can we get this number to go down uh you start making bad decisions that don't like (laughs) uh don't actually help you pursue the thing you thought that this metric would help with
0: i couldn't agree more right like that's the thing about the gradual, like, neoliberalization of our public institutions over the mm. last several decades is that, like, rather than acknowledging that, you know, running a, a disability agency or, like, a poverty program um, is, is serving a particular purpose, um, mm-hmm. we decide that every single institution, every single government office needs to be meeting very specific targets right and that totally they they need to be improving on all of these different metrics and mm. like how carefully are those metrics chosen right like is totally. it like oh how many appointments can you squeeze into a day right or like i yeah. remember like being in a program where she was like oh well we need to like close your file basically because we have to finish every file within this many right. months and so <laughs> even if you don't leave with the services you were supposed to get, it's actually more important to that office that the file gets closed on time.
1: Totally. Yeah, well, and that's that's why it's such an important thing, like, for people who run businesses, right, is that they don't have the capacity to, uh, like, direct every, you know, if it's, like, a 1,000 people who work at the company, you sort of do need ways to, like, aggregate how is it going overall, right? But um, if you... Become too hung up on those numbers, then people will start cutting corners um, to meet the number without actually doing the thing that the number was supposed to represent. Yeah, exactly. Oh, we're supposed to close the files within three months. That means we're supposed to fully perform the service within three months. But if you're just measuring how quickly the files get closed, uh, let's just cut
0: some services.
1: Yeah, let's just do less. Let's let's just close the file even though it's not really done. Right? You you totally uh can can lose the plot when you get too too hung up on uh any sort of measure whether it be uh race or dark triad or whatever (laughs) (laughs) well said liam well said well should we move to the quiz
0: let's do it i'm ready
1: okay cool it's a quiz uh not super related to what we talked to today other than that it has to do with something that's very complicated and hard to measure Oh, good. Uh, I've got a I've got a question, and I've got one hint. Okay. Uh, and the question is, what was Canada's overall poverty rate in 2021? Uh, that's the last year that data have been published for. Okay. And if you'd like the hint, I will tell you the rate in 2015 uh, was 14.5 percent.
0: Okay. I'm gonna guess that the overall poverty rate was nine percent.
1: The answer is seven point four percent.
0: Wow. You know what's funny about that mm. is I was actually gonna guess lower until I heard mm. you say fourteen and then oh, I interesting. Bumped it up because I was <laughs> like, how could it change so quickly in such a short amount of time?
1: Yeah, uh, totally. That's sort of why I wanted to give the hint, actually, was to, like, let you uh, peg your answer to, like, a known, a known entity instead of sort of a shot in the dark. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, the, the the government has, uh, like, legislatively committed to trying to reduce the poverty rate uh, by, by half between 2015 and 2030. Mm-hmm. And they're pretty much already there from 14.5 to 7.4 is the progress so far. That's so, uh, amazing. I thought that was that was great. <laughs> There's like a whole bunch of programs that have been brought in, like the the Canada Child Benefit, uh Canada Workers Benefit, uh increased old age security. And uh yeah, the numbers are kinda startling. the the one that struck me the most probably is uh six hundred and fifty three thousand fewer children are in poverty wow. now as compared to twenty fifteen. So uh yeah, <laughs> I, I just heard someone I, I read an article that like went over Justin Trudeau's uh, uh, track record so far because uh, he's not doing so hot in like the, the latest polling. And one mm-hmm. thing they mentioned in that article was like, well, he has cut poverty by half. And I was like, what? <laughs> I had no idea. That's fantastic. What a, like <laughs> I think one of the themes of our show is like the prioritizing people's like, material uh, well fair um, above sort of ideological things and uh, that's a great number that's 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 a real real accomplishment for the country yeah so, uh, yeah
0: <laughs> absolutely a good news segment and a quiz yeah. at the same time <laughs> no that's really cool like you know it is it's hard to keep perspective on things right like if if mm-hmm. everyone around you is struggling or even if everyone around you is, just really on social media and there's a lot of struggle that's that's being shown on there you know like it's it's very easy to feel like we're not getting anywhere or like that things are even getting worse um and you know there there are some areas where it feels like things aren't happening uh quickly enough you know for example maybe in in the climate change response Uh, but to know that you know there is significant change that has been accomplished like we should we should celebrate that you know like I uh, totally yeah I no, feel I, like, I'm, I'm with you yeah back when I was like really deep in social justice land it was like almost um, offensive to point out yes what had improved <laughs> because it was really important that we keep this story about like cis hetero white supremacist patriarchy uh, you know grinding right. everyone to dust um, and so that resulted in like either ignoring or downplaying or even being suspicious of anything that's gotten yes. better and um i yeah, not totally. into that well, anymore. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, and it does I, I think that it is it still is important to keep in mind, like the you know, I'm trying to listen to that feedback from the top of the episode that like seven point four percent is still lots of people in poverty mm-hmm. and that life's really hard for those people. Um and so it's not like mission accomplished or anything like that but uh no yeah at the same time there's like a whole other seven percent that were in poverty uh six or eight years ago who are not anymore which is those those lives also those stories also are important you know
0: yeah absolutely i like that framing you know it's like I think one really cool thing that it shows is that like policy can make a huge difference in poverty and so let's yeah. see how low we can get it right <laughs> let's try and totally. get it all the way down I, to,
1: I do I do I'm like well I hope they upgrade their goal right because if they're only aiming for 50% reduction then like are they going to just do nothing for the next seven years or They're like we're good again <laughs> yeah, right when metrics it. become
0: targets yeah, <laughs> yeah you're yeah, like
1: totally.
0: yeah well <laughs> <Yep>. poverty solved <laughs> let's just pause everything we don't need to do anymore
1: <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> no i think no. i think they'll keep trying i hope they'll keep trying
1: i think so too
0: <laughs> well this has been hot take think tank until next time